afternoon, folks. It's Terry and Tom from the Metaphysical Mysteries, and love to have you here and uh, enjoy having the opportunity to present new and unusual things to you. Um, one of the things we do here at the Metaphysical Mysteries is we look at healing techniques that are maybe somewhat out of the ordinary, you know, not so traditional. And uh, that's important because people need to look at all the uh, possibilities for their health and things that are coming on strong here in the, in the future. And so today we have a excellent guest, um, Jean Brinker. Jeannie, uh, you're an RN, have been for many decades. And uh, well so, uh, she was uh, using her skills uh, from traditional into integrative medicine in uh, Western Pennsylvania and a couple of hospitals there. And she's going to talk to us about some of the different kinds of healing uh, methodologies that they used in, in her practice uh, and so forth. So, uh, Jenny, why don't you go ahead and give the folks a little bit of background on you, and we'll we'll jump in with questions from time to time. Okay. Well, I was a traditionally um, trained registered nurse. My first job right out of uh, nursing school was critical care and coronary care. So I was very high tech um, for that time. High tech uh, medication, everything that I was taught. That's what I was very invested in. Mm -hmm. And I can remember my first year, I was taking a tray of food in to one of the patients that had just had a heart attack. And what was on that tray was um, salty bouillon, Sanka decaf coffee, and jello. And Perfect. I looked at that tray and I thought, surely we can do better. I mean, this, this was, you know, your heart muscle that needed the most nourishment, and this is what we were giving you. So I, I started searching way back then but never really found exactly what I wanted until I needed. When you, when you have a need, a stressful need, I had stepped back from nursing for uh, when my kids were young to raise them and take care of my aging parents and their health issues started to overwhelm me. So one day I saw in the paper, St. Vincent de Paul had advertised for Healing Touch and I had no idea what it was, but I was so stressed. I looked at that and I said, I need healing. I don't know what this is. I'm going to learn about it. So I go to this class and I'm sitting around, you know, here I am, this classically trained RN, and there's all these people waving their arms, waving their hands over our body. We learn how to get down the body, over the energy centers of the body. And I thought, this is nuts until I started feeling the effects of it. And the person, you know, we were all, we had all the beds set up. And people were having the same experiences that I was having without even talking to them. And we'd sit up and discuss what happened to us. Well, how could this happen to me and them? And this all be in my head. So at that point, I was really intrigued. And once you start learning anything in the energy fields and, you know, any of this stuff, you have to learn everything, at least for me. So right. I learned Reiki and I got involved in yoga and yoga was actually how I got back into the hospital setting in an integrative medicine type of mode because the Dr. Dean Ornish program was opening in a local hospital, in a small community hospital. And what it was was um, reversing cardiac disease, not just treating it, but actually reversing it. So it has, had four components. It was diet, exercise, 
um, group support, and stress management. And the stress management was yoga. So I was hired as backup to the yoga instructor, who class I was to begin with, asked me, well, you know, we need somebody else in case I get sick. And because you're an RM with cardiac experience, you'd be perfect. So, okay, you know, I went back, was part-time, was great, still home with the kids, still able to do this. And it just snowballed from there because that program had such excellent results and people started talking about this hospital. Um, you know, they just didn't know what was going on there, but something great was going on. So then the CEO came and said, well, I still want you to work in the program, but I want you to go out on the departments now. And this was like, whoa, because now I have to take this modality of, you know, Reiki, hands-on, and explain it to people who haven't come to me for this. You know, when they came to the program, people knew what they were getting into, but people in the hospital, you walk into a patient room and you're gonna present this. So I went down to the, to the nursing and med surge floor. And of course the staff was like, you know, what's she doing here? You know, we don't need her here. So I'd go every day and I'd kind of try to explain what I was doing. Well, the one day I went, and one of the nurses had always looked at me like, oh, you know, keep away from her. She's weird. She had put her hand in the microwave to get a, a mug and her hands were wet. So the mug stuck right here. And when she pulled the mug apart, it just took the skin with it. So she's in excruciating pain and I just happened to be there. So I walk in very quietly and I said, you know, I can help you with that. So when you're in pain, people will do anything. So I put one drop of lavender because I had a little cart, which I had my essential oils and all my tools with me. Put one drop on, sitting in the corner of the, of the lunchroom, working on her hand, and the pain goes away. And so she looks at me like, I can't believe this actually happened. And you know, this thing was, was wide open. It was a nice spot about like that. And so you know, I just said, well, I'm glad the pain's gone. And I went about my business. The next day I went, she said, it's scabbed over. It's scabbed over. It hasn't hurt. This stuff is amazing. Whatever you do, you got to do this in every room here. So from that point on, I had an ally. So there were physicians there who right away were on board with it and physicians who just thought it was just a waste of time. So that's how I really got um, started was one person with the problem who became my advocate and it just spread throughout the hospital. So then I started adding more things because I was learning more things. Started with sound therapies. Now you can see the bowl in the background, that's a, a crystal bowl. We had a whole set of those. Um, so they're each tuned to the chakras. This one is a D and it's tuned to the sacral chakra, which is two inches below your belly button. Okay, I'll, 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 I'll stop you for a second, just for the just for the listeners. Okay. <clears throat> She's talking about chakras. I I've said this before on the podcast, but for the new listeners, um, you know it's it's a you know Sanskrit name, Eastern philosophies call the energy centers in the body chakras. You know we would call them energy centers here in the U.S. Um, we don't uh, speak that language very often, but for the folks that are in this field, that's very common language. So they're just little, as uh, some people describe them as little energy tornadoes. Okay, come out of your forehead as one or the top of your head or your throat, your heart, 
and as you go on down solar plexus and uh, then there's a sacral chakra and then the root chakra so as she's talking that's that's some of the lingo that uh, people learn when they first get into energy work and healing and so forth so yeah perfect go ahead Jean. i'm excited to hear how this comes out <laughs> so we started doing the, the entire house which means they had a maternity department we'd start in the morning and i had other people that were now working in the department, a massage therapist. We had a girl who was a musician who became a certified um, harpist. So we had a, she had a little mini harp. We built a cart. We had carts for everything. And we'd start down in the, at the, in the nursery in the morning. So there'd be times I'd be working on a mother and a child. This was after delivery. Um, just, you know, calming everything. And I can, I can remember the mother holding this child and she was just so ecstatic. She goes, I can, it feels like you're washing love over me. She was just, you know, and, and the baby was just all warm and cuddly and cooing. So that was one. How much time, would you, how much time would you spend with a, like a mother and a child? I mean, are we talking an hour, half an hour, five minutes? I mean, where, what would a person expect if they were watching you do that? It just depended on the person's need. Yeah. Sometimes it would be just maybe five, ten, 10 minutes. Sometimes it would be an hour, depending on what person, what that person needed. Mm -hmm. So the one time we went into the nursery, and this was a baby that was getting its heel uh, um, pricked to get blood, a blood sample, and the lab tech was having a terrible time getting the blood to move into the little tube, because you just prick it and kind of the blood just goes into a little tubule. And she's sweating, the baby's screaming, so I just walked over, went over to the baby, just a few minutes of calming, and this was called um, in Healing Touch Unruffling, because mm -hmm. when, the, when there's pain, and I can feel that, the energy field becomes uh, disturbed. Sometimes so you're, you're, you're empathic in your very nature. Yeah. Which would be kind of good for a nurse, I would think. It's, it's the <laughs> two double-edged double swords, so to speak. It, you know, if you're feeling it all, you know, that's hard to control. But if you're feeling it all, you also know what's going on. Well... With, with this baby, you, I could feel how it was disturbed and I just smoothed it out. And the baby curls over, starts sucking and the lab tech gets the blood. She goes, what did you do? Now with a baby, you can't tell it anything. You can't instruct it. It just, it just feels it. Mm -hmm. So each time I did these things, because when I first started, I thought this was woo-woo too. You know, I mean, I, I practiced for three years before I let anybody see me doing it. I mean, right. so that's, that's how traditional and conservative I was. Right. And so when you start doing those things and things like babies and animals respond without any kind of instruction or any way for you to verbally influence them, you know that's real. And so the more you know that, the more you see that, it confirms it and makes you more confident. And in doing this work, you really have to have that confidence because you're going in with something that somebody has no idea what you're doing and they immediately feel it. And so that just, that confidence that you have, they feel that as well. And the biggest part of that is calming that person down. And so we would do that, we'd start in the morning with the babies, we'd go up to the med surge floor with people that have post-surgery, um, heart attacks, all of that, and then we'd end up in the palliative care unit. And the first hospital had an amazing, amazing palliative care unit. It was just, it was probably the first of its kind in the area where they, they looked at death and dying as 
a normal function of life. And it's, it's not the end, it's the beginning of the transition. And so it was just a beautiful, beautiful place to work. It was actually, you know, I'd never really worked in hospice or, or palliative care before it became my favorite spot to go because those people were so close to spirit at that point that this work was just so welcomed and so easy to do and easy to explain to family members who were the ones I, when I would go into a room, would always ask the family to participate. So we'd have the family members all sit around the bed or stand or whatever, but just touch the patient. So that when I worked on the patient, I was also working on the whole family. And in many cases, people had a hard time coming to terms with the death of their loved one, but they were able to open up and talk to them. Sometimes family members came who had grudges or had you know, a bad past history with that family member that would open up. And the family members would seek me out afterwards and explain how, how this had helped them. So it was really, um, it was just the most wonderful experience, I think, for me as well as everyone else, because when you do this work, you get more, I think, than what you give. Right. You know, well, you I know a, a lot of people that are in the hospice line, I mean, of course, those are typically hospice, at least where I'm at, you can't even get them until you're six months or less uh, yeah. to expected or anticipated passing. But um, the nurses, and I know my wife worked in that, she's an RN as well. And uh, I think that the nurses that work in there, one, they're really special people to be able to do that in the first place. Mm -hmm. And then they get a really good sense of when this person is going to pass and, and walking them through these things uh, is, is fascinating. And it's a kind of a healing technique that you're not going to get in a doctor's office where they're going to you know, pass you 30 pills for the next month. That's not exactly what this is, but, mm -hmm. and, and, let me ask you, if, if a nurse that's out there listening wanted to get into this kind of integrative medicine, um, what would be the first step you might recommend to him or her? Well, there is um, the American Holistic Nurses Association, okay. which would give you a good background. You can join that. They have a, a publication. Um, you can go online. Um, trying to think who else. There was the hospital at the time when I, and this was, in the 2000 was Plain Tree. I'm not sure if Plain Tree is still around, but it was an international organization that fostered this. We were a member of that hospice, that, that organization. So we got lots of information from that. I went to a lot of their conferences and presented there. Um, you also have to have a CEO that's progressive, that's open to these things. And you have to be able to present, you have to have that confidence to go in and say, I can do this for your hospital. Because I worked at that other hospital, the first hospital for 10 years. And when the CEO retired, everything changed. You know, departments were, were uh, downsized was what they called it. And so I was no longer employed there because it was just, you know, not seen as important anymore. Right. So the next hospital I went to was more of a behavioral health hospital. And one person that I had worked with previously was working there and introduced me to the CEO. And so again, this was a progressive CEO, saw the value, and I was able to fly there as well and bring everything that I had done in the first hospital to a behavioral health setting, which was again new to me, 
and not something I would have actually chosen. It's that you're dealing with um, drug addictions, abused people. I mean, you're dealing with people that can be very violent at times. It was a lockdown unit. Sometimes you have people throwing chairs through the windows that were supposed to be unbreakable. So that tells you the level of anger and um, difficulty that you're working with. So when you come into a situation like that um, and you have, do you start with one-on-one -on -one or is it a group setting or both? And, and then how do you start with somebody who's that angry? Again, that you have to read the situation. But my very first go-to tool for everybody that I ever worked with was breathing, breath work. Right. Because you need to first breathe that way yourself to calm yourself down so that you don't, um, that person doesn't read in you that you're anxious. They right. need to read in you calm, cool, collected, and in charge of the situation. Because if you come in at them, and usually what would happen when they call a code, Calling a code is when everybody comes and rushes to help. And when a person sees everybody in the hospital coming, that would make them even more violent. So sometimes I would go, just me, and I just go into the room or into the hallway, depends on where they had their, their upset, and just stand there with my head down, sort of just, just stand there and just let my presence be felt. And then I would just inch my way closer and kind of read the situation. If it was safe, I would sit beside them, not even talking at this point, just breathing. And that's a process of entrainment. And entrainment is whenever, it's like the biggest oscillator in the room entrains all the other vibrations to itself. And so just by being that presence, you calm that person. And so then you're able to speak to them and get them to breathe. And then whatever technique I thought was be beneficial for them, that's what we did. So were these mostly males you were dealing with or females or both, was it both, mixed? Both, it was ages 14 and up. Okay. So you could have kids and you know, they could be just coming off of drugs. They could be alcoholics, you know, in withdrawal. You, you had every gamut. And a lot of these people have been abused and they wouldn't tell you this at first, but once you got calm, they would wanted to tell you to get that out. And that's another healing part of it is get having someone listen and be your, your advocate or just listen to you in a, in a non-judgmental way. Tommy, this sounds a lot like some of the things you do. Yeah, and you hit on a really good point there, Gene. Um, so many people I know as they learn these modalities, you know, they want to come in and just apply the, what I call the woo-woo on them and try to just do the quick solve. Yeah. Uh, I know I've trained many people to do disaster response work using some of these tools and what they feel to remember that we have to make a big deal about is these people have the right to tell their story yeah the point you know they just want to fix it and move on and that's not the deal if someone's been through something they've earned that right to share what they need to share as well as get the treatment absolutely so, you know, raise a really good point there yeah i had that just brings up i was also we had a ptsd program mm -hmm. so um and it was just beginning and i was just new in that part of it but I had all, you know, I had done all the hospital work I did in this department. I had an 83-year-old gentleman come in and he sat down and his wife was with him and another veteran because we had one, another veteran who was kind of working with us. And this gentleman starts telling me a story and it's really long and involved and I'm not sure where it went, where he was going with it. And all of a sudden 
it took a turn and I knew exactly where he was going. And he tells me this story that I'm praying the whole time, God help me be able to listen to this because it was brutal. I mean, and his wife was sitting there, her mouth dropped open and she was just like awestruck. And when he was done, he says, I've never told anyone this. I've held this for all these years and I had to do this before I, uh, before I die. So I, it took me a month to recover from that, the brutality of it. And so I just, I kept breathing and breathing. You know, just because you know these techniques, you're the person that needs them the most because you're holding it for yourself and for that other person who has no idea how to do that. So that was just, I can still see his face. I mean, it was just, it was actually an honor for me to be able to do that. But, but it was really intense. So how do you do your self-care when you <laughs> run across something like that? Because for, for, I mean, for the, obviously the practitioners, self-care is a big deal because you're going to go from one trauma to another, to another, to another. another. To another. Yeah. And that was what I did for, in the hospital as well. I wasn't just working with patients. It was care for the caregiver programs that we did. We, did, we had massage. We had the music therapy. Um, interestingly enough, and I'm not even sure how this person got a hold of, I, I don't even remember how it began, but she, she was someone who does that. She did um, uh, music therapy using the right frequencies. Are you familiar with that? Yes. So they're encoded in, in music that she, you know, was uh, underlaid in the music. And so she gifted me all her stuff because her son who had passed, who was a drug addict and had died from an overdose, and she was in communication with him, told her that I would be able to use this in the setting that I was in. And so we opened up a room we called the dolphin room and we had a video, they encoded it with dolphins and sounds and the right frequencies embedded in that. So it was a room with, had a, with a TV screen, we had a lounge chair, I had essential oils, um, we had all of that so that people could go in and do some self-care. So that was some of the things that I did. But, I, I, you know, breathing, breathing, breathing is number one. Um, guided imagery for yourself, color therapy, essential oils, sound. And one of my very, very favorite is drumming. Drumming is just awesome for breathing. Let's, let's go ahead, Tom. Do you have something? I was just going to say, um, if you don't mind, for the listeners that have no idea what this entails, could you explain maybe the breathing, like a, give them a takeaway for today, if you would. Okay. So breathing is, okay, first of all, we have a central nervous system, okay? So it controls your heart, it controls your breathing, and there's two components to that, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic. Now, the sympathetic is your go system. That's your... Um, fight or flight response, which is automatic. Anytime you're faced with stress or danger, your body automatically goes into this. And it can be good in a short term, you know, to get you out of danger, immediate danger threat, but it's fight, flight, or freeze. So what happens is your heart rate goes up, your blood pressure goes up, blood is moved from the digestive system out to the arms or the legs to help you fight or run away. Your mouth is dry, your focus becomes narrow to focus on the danger in front of you. And unless you dispel that energy, because it's intense, it 
cortisol, all these stress hormones are poured into your bloodstream to give you that extra energy. And so when you're saturated with this, your body is like, you know, you can just be start to shake. So when people are faced with that and they've had a trauma, you can become locked into that fight or flight. And the opposite or the parasympathetic part of the nervous system is the rest, relax and digest. The exact opposite, heart rate comes down, breathing is slower, blood pressure is slower. You get the feel good hormones, dopamine and it, all of those things to help you relax. And so in order to do this, you have to know how to control the breathing. So the breathing is a belly breath. When you're stressed breathing, you breathe like this and you can see that in people when they're stressed. And that's what I meant by when I went in the room with people, I had to have my shoulders down, I had to have a relaxed look on my face and I had to be belly breathing. So belly breathing, it's in through the nose and out through the nose. And if you guys want to practice with me, okay. So you, you would, it's really best if you can lay down, but you can do it in any position. And we used to, I used to teach people that preferably lying down because you can really get that relaxation going. But I'll, I'll go sideways so you can see. I teach people put one hand on your belly and one hand on your chest mm -hmm. so that you take, just take a breath first of all and see which went up first. So if you took a breath and your shoulders went up first, you knew you were in stress breathing. And most people didn't realize that. If you take a breath and your belly goes up first, let me see if I can get back a little further so you can see. Okay. So you wanna take a breath in and the tummy goes up. When you exhale, the tummy goes down. Okay, that's the first step. So you take a breath to the count of four, but you exhale to the count of eight. So the exhale is twice as long as the inhale. And the reason for that is it signals to the body that you're safe. And your body will not move you out of fight or flight unless you feel safe. And that's again why sitting beside someone, having that calm demeanor signals to that person that the environment is safe. It's okay to let go. Right. So, you know, um, it's interesting because, well, Tom and I, of course, come from police backgrounds as well as we're both, you know, public safety scuba instructors. Yeah. And so this kind of breathing, I'll use scuba, you know, oftentimes I would teach my students and still do um, to use that technique, you know, the breathe in full and then, slowly let it out and it really keeps them calm when they're underwater. If they do that super, you know, upper lung situation, you're going to have problems. Yeah. Um, likewise, police officers, of course, we always call things differently, but they learn to do tactical breathing is what they call it. Of course, it's got to be called something like that or cops aren't going to do it. <laughs> but, you know, they try to get you to do that before you make a SWAT entry or or some other high stress situation where you're really thinking clearly because all those things talked about the sympathetic, parasympathetic system. They get taught that in the academy now in most places. And so they're familiar with it, at least to uh, from a later on practical point of view, but at least book-wise, they um, understand what's happening to them. So I think what you're talking about here is an integration into societal jobs that are high stress. Mm -hmm. They need to do these things. I mean, if I was a surgeon going to go in and do brain surgery, I'd certainly want to do some uh, deep breathing, belly breathing before I went in. So I was calm and that's 
even if you're firing a firearm, you know, and I'm firearms instructors and all that sort of, sort of thing, you get people to breathe like that. So it calms them down. So they're not jerking that firearm, you know, right and left or up and down. And that's so, yeah, there's tons of really, really, it's really important, really good information, a lot of data as to how effective that is. So, so you bring them in, they're doing belly breathing and then what do you what do you switch to and i want to make sure we cover some sound issues too because you know as uh, i'm an edgar casey fan so we always said everything is vibration and of course we know sound is vibration but everything is and uh, how that integrates with with what you're what you're doing well that would be the beginning part of the breathing and then i would progress to the three-part breath which is a yoga breath so you inhale fully from the belly but then you pull that up to the middle of the chest all the way up to the collarbone. So that, right. that increases the volume of breathing. And I always use like, use a cup so that people understand this. When you say I had a pitcher and I was pouring water into this cup, you fill it from the bottom, the middle and the top. That's the inhale. But when exactly. you exhale, you pour it out from the top, the middle and the bottom. And if you explain it to people with that, if you give them a visual like that, they could get it. So you do a couple of those full deep breaths, not so much that you're, you know, expanding too hard or you're forcing it. You just do a couple of those. And most people would then go into automatic, we're automatic belly breathers. Babies are born, born belly breathers. You know, the stress is what, the stresses of life are what cause it to come up here. But when I would do a treatment on anybody, I would do that. And they only had to do maybe four or five of those big full breaths. And then they just go right in because then they're changing their brainwaves. They're going out of that scattered brainwave into the alpha and then into theta, which is deep relaxation. So most of the time when I would do work on anybody, they'd fall asleep, you know, and they'd be the most stressed person and they'd say, no, no, I can't relax. And they'd be mouth hanging open snoring <laughs> and so relaxed and their family members would be laughing like, how did you do that? But it, it's just allowing that person to feel that space where they're relaxed, they're safe, and it's automatic. You know, none of this is magic. This is, the body is designed this way, beautifully right. designed this way. You know, and I, I would point out that the Eastern philosophies um, have taught this for centuries, yeah. uh, how to breathe properly. And, you know, we think of the Buddhist monk or something sitting and, and meditating, and they go through those very same steps to get to, and you pointed out the brain waves, you know, with, you know, alpha and you know, theta and so forth, where a lot of magical stuff happens when you get to that level. Uh, probably won't cover a whole lot of that today, but um, it, just so people know, there are different brain waves depending upon what, how active you are engaging in, in this uh, reality or not, or if you're relaxed and that changes up quite a bit. And it's, it's really kind of neat to, to study that whole aspect. And maybe we'll get into a little of it, but uh, go right ahead, Jean. Well, it, that's kind of like a coherent thing. When you're scattered, when your energy, and again, if you can feel it, for those people that understand what I'm talking about, when you feel that energy field, it, to me, sometimes it feels like jaggers, like spikes. Or, this, this, is, this is on your hand, you're feeling that, or just in general? No, on, on my hand. On your hand. So like okay. with a Reiki practitioner, you know, they're rubbing a hand over a portion of the body. Uh, an inch or two above the body. So you're able to actually feel that on the palm of your hand. Yes. A lot of people in the, uh, in the, well, in the Eastern culture, they usually, they see those hands with eyes that are, you know, you see them where they wrote it on the side of a 
whatever, a wall or a cave or yeah. books. And that's what they're really talking about, you know, being able to see with your hands. And that's what Reiki practitioners are actually doing, feeling that energetic change when you go from one part of the body to another. And so when you say jagged or you're feeling that, that's for the listeners, that's what she's talking about. So when, when you've cleared that off and it feels smooth, then you know that that person, you know, you, you've done what you can do to remove that block or whatever that's causing that upset. But sound can do the same thing. So you don't actually even have to be moving your hands. You can just be doing it with voice. You can have the person do it with voice. That's where chanting and, and you know, vocalization. There's even breathing techniques where you, it's called humming bee breath. You guys want to see that one? Sure. We're, we're in for a dime and for a dollar. So. Okay. Well, there's a lot of different things that you can do. So Hanumbi breath uses the exact same body mechanics, belly breathing. The only thing that you're doing is in your brain, you have pituitary gland. So that's like the master gland. And okay. it hangs from a little stalk of, of tissue into like a, like a bowl or a little saddle. And that there's blood surrounding it. So liquid vibrates. You can't, you can massage your muscles here. You can't get inside your head with your hands and massage your head, but sound can do that. So when you get the sound vibration, it penetrates every part of your body because you're like 70 to 75% water anyway. So you're vibrating all that fluid. So what you're doing by doing this is you're calming that whole, again, going into that rest, relax and repair. So what I'm going to do is take a nice deep breath and I'm going to be closing my ears like this, plugging, plugging my ears. And as I exhale, I'm going to make a sound like this. Mm, so you're basically humming. It's called humming bee for, because it's like a bee sound, just like bees. And actually you can sit out and if I've done this with my lavender. I have like a lot of lavender and bees love lavender. So you sit with them when they're buzzing and you hum, they fly around you just like you're another bee. They don't bother you. It's really cool. So if somebody's like really into nature, you can try that. It's just a fun thing. But anyway, here's here's the breath. You guys want to try? I don't know if you have anything in your ears, like speakers. You can do this. Yeah, I do. Yeah, so you can't do I, it. I, yeah, I've got stuff too. Okay, so you just go like this. Relax. Take that belly breath. So you do that as long as you can and you try to make the breath really steady, smooth and steady. And then you step back and you just feel this really calmness just kind of flow down over you. So if anybody watching this wants to practice that, you can just look Google humming bee breath and you can get more information on it. Um, and you do this several times and ch change the pitch because you'll find a different resonance in your body. Um, I especially like the really deepest tones. So what is happening is it's soothing your energy field. So as we talk about the chakras, you know, they're a nice smooth vortex of energy. And when they're disharmonious, that's when you, you have your problems, you're upset. And so the, the sound just can do that very quickly. And you can do that with a tuning fork. And Terry, I know you've used tuning forks a lot. This one is um, earth vibration. And you can just go down over the body doing that, or you can use the end of it, place it on any of the acupoints, 
acupressure points in the body or any place that just hurts. You don't have to worry about rules, just especially with this, just, you know, you can just put it all down the sides and you'll feel it. Sometimes well, I've just put this over people's ears and it just relaxes and it's, again, it's like a bee. You hear that nice soft buzz, very, very comforting. I know on tuning forks that, you know, I use seven different kinds for the seven different chakras. Yeah. Um, other people will use one or two, uh, depending on the way they've been taught, trained or believe. And uh, so I didn't know if you, from your perspective, if there's a technique that you prefer over maybe some others as it relates to using the tuning forks. And a lot of people, until they've experienced a true tuning fork, you know, yeah. Uh, deal. Uh, they they don't quite get that because it's invisible, but so's the wind. But you can still sure see the effect. Um, so, uh, what would you do? What would you suggest? What what's been successful for you? And uh, have you had anybody who's had that kind of treatment and then seen a significant change? Well, yes, and and that and not just from tuning forks because again with the tuning forks. My way to do it is mostly down over the body or over the area that hurts. Because mm -hmm. when in, you know, being a nurse, you're faced with hurting all the time. People are always in pain. Right. So, and in, depending on the amount of time you have or the situation, you know, you just go in and take care of what, what is in front of you present right now. And so for me, it was usually take care of that spot that hurts. And so doing the tuning fork over that and then over the whole entire body. But like this, the uh, bowl, the um, crystal bowl does the same thing, only it is a much more intense sound. So depending on the situation, we, I can remember taking them to hospice, uh, palliative care, and it was a younger woman that was dying. And she had had a lot of anger issues and she, she couldn't get rid of that and she wanted to before she passed. And so we put the bowls at the, around the bed. I never put, because they're very, very powerful. And we start out very slowly just doing one or two. But that has such a sound that envelops your whole body. When we were done, she, she was able to talk about the people she, she was angry with. She forgave them, she forgave herself. And her family came to me again afterwards, after she had passed, they brought other family members to see where she had passed and how she had had this ease of passing and wasn't an angry person anymore. I mean, that just brought tears to my eyes because that's healed the family too. Did you want to hear the sound? Because you can use a lot of old yeah. yeah, put it on there so we can give it a give it a try. Well, this is a small metal bowl. This is so you can go really intense or really gentle with it. I've had it actually done on me where it was just just like that. And it felt like the sound enveloped me in comfort. It was very, very helpful. And now I'll, I'll show you the bowl.
you hear that? On, yeah, yeah, on even. Back, you feel a room, and, and it just, people would tell me it felt like they were floating on sound. Mm -hmm. So that's that was one another way to, to use sound therapy. And the other, you can also do this. With drums, mm -hmm. this was a drum um, that I made with a, a Native American gentleman who showed us how to make them. And you know, in the back, you have all your favorite stuff. But you can also do the chakras. Just so imagine doing this. Oh, and you do it over, all the way down, start at the top and down. It's really, really comforting if you can do it over someone's back. I've had it done with the didgeridoo. The same way that sound just floats, you just feel like you're floating on it. Um, when I did drumming in groups, drumming was one of my favorite things because you could affect an entire room full of people. We, we did this once at a prison. Um, we rolled up, there's barbed wire. We had to go through and have everything checked. We couldn't have a pen, we couldn't have any, any sticks because we use hand, hand drums. And this is one of the drums. If anybody is interested, especially nurses, I, I recommend Health Rhythms drum training. I was one of the one of the first facilitators of this. It is an amazing, amazing, amazing technique because it, it's got a sense of community. You don't have to know anything about music. Um, it's all inclusive. I would have eight-year-olds sitting beside 80-year-olds and they were equals because what we're working on is what's in here, and that's ageless. Right. So it doesn't matter what the body is. What's inside is what you're affecting, that childlike ability to play. And a lot of times people haven't played in a long time, especially people that have been abused or are under the influence of alcohol and drugs. This just, I would have people come in, especially younger teenagers, would come into the drum circle, look at me and go, oh, gee. You know, what do we have to do now? Because they had groups, you know, and I come in with my, all my drums and they roll their eyes. And one of them, one time when they did that, I just looked over and said, hey, you're going to roll your eyes. At least do it with enthusiasm, you know, like put your hands on your hips and, you know, shake your head and really give it to me. They start laughing and they said, well, well, we'll try it. People that did that who were the most um, skeptical were always the people I couldn't get rid of at the end. They never wanted to quit playing because it is so inclusive and it allows your voice. A lot of times people can't find their own voice, but through the drum, that's your voice. And you can say so many things through a drum. You know, you can really pound on it and get the anger out, or you can just be really soft and gentle and let that little hidden voice come out. I think um, if people aren't picking up on this, I'll point it out. Clearly, you need to have a lot of background, uh, a lot of, um, I would think you'd need to be mentored by some expert like yourself to be able to do this effectively um, if you were going to, you know, have clients and, or be in some kind of a, or even try it at home with family and friends. We, you really need to know what you're doing uh, so you can you know, get the right response and do what is necessary. Is there particular things, let's say, let's take a 17-year-old, 18-year-old drug addict, is there something that you would use in particular with sound that would be different than, I don't know, somebody with some other problem? 
I don't, I don't really, didn't really look at it. You're, you're just reading the energy field of that person. So I yeah. never looked at anybody as a case, you, sure. know, a, you know, it didn't matter to me that it's that particular person, what they presented to me at that moment. Um, as I said, I've always used essential, I always use breathing, but I also use essential oils like lavender is my go-to. Let's talk about those essential oils. So smell is a, is, you know, leans right up against the memory portion of the brain. So, um, tell us how that integrates into all this. Um, as you said, that, that is part of the memory and it goes directly to the first scent that you have, you know, infants know to, to go for milk by scent. You know, it's, it's part of the instinct that we all have. So when you use an essential oil and, you know, I have many, many different oils, but basically lavender and tea tree. So you just put one drop on your hand. And if a person, I mean, you had to ask about allergies. So you do have to really know. I became um, certified in this because I didn't want to harm anybody. Always do no harm. So you can put it on a scent stick, which is, or a tissue. Like I would label it and put the scent on the end of the stick. So a person could just waft it in front of them. So we'd go in, we'd add this to the breathing because once you learn the breathing, you bring that oil in, it goes into the system, it goes to the brain and it helps to enhance the relaxation response. Um, I used to have diffusers in the rooms, especially in uh, the palliative care unit, always had a diffuser going. Um, and you would have to be careful because you couldn't overdo it because you can always overdo anything. Less right. is more with essential oils. So is there a particular oil for um, a particular problem, uh, say, you know, somebody's having anxiety. Is there a go-to oil, one or two that you would recommend, or do they get to pick what feels good to them? Um, I would pick what, what, because each plant has its own characteristics of what it heals. So yeah, there are categories. So your relaxing ones would be chamomile and lavender. Rose oil is a really good one. The citrus um, oils are also good. They're light. Uh, you don't want to come in with anything really heavy, like a, a root oil, like, uh, although frankincense is root oil, it's a, it's a very good one too. Right. So well, I know that there's actual certification programs for nurses, mm -hmm. you know, uh, state of Florida, for example, they, you know, have a whole program and you get in-service credit for that by right. taking this uh, essential oil program. So apparently it's becoming a whole lot more mainstream and not so woo-woo as as we know, as science progresses, a lot of the woo-woo mystical things that we hear about actually have science as a basis, but it's just a matter of getting science there, uh, yeah. you know, so that the basis is, you know, it all kind of goes together. So Tommy, do you use any any uh, uh, aromatherapy at all with your, with your clients? Um, on occasion, we have some stuff that helps to actually unlock the traumas. Mm -hmm. Bring it up to the service a little quicker with some proprietary blend that one of the people I work with developed. Mm -hmm. That seems to accelerate the healing a little bit. So it does have value. I mean, really, if we go back to fundamentals, odors are just chemical reactions and chemical reactions right. are energy. So we're back. We're making another path, if you will, to what we're already talking about. Yeah, exactly. And you can also use, we'll use uh, the homeopathic preparation of plants. Mm -hmm. So five flower essence, um, it's, a, it's five different plants. And we used to make it as a spray so that we could go in and just spray the room. So we came in very gently, especially anybody in palliative care. You don't want to come in, you know, with all your stuff up close. 
start back here, come in with your own energy field, use the um, flower essences, which are the energetic signature of the plant. This is actually the distilled part of the plant. So this has really chemical, but what when you're using the homeopathic, it's just the energetics of it, which Great. is what you're trying to get to anyway. So that was part of our protocol when I worked in the palliative care unit. Our, the yes. physician there, she and I um, studied at the same um, herbal studies. She specialized in the homeopathic. So we use that an awful lot, you know, and I always carry that with me as well. So Jean, um, oh, go, go ahead, Tom. The funny part about the homeopathics is less is more. Less is it, more, always less is more. What the people may not know is it gets diluted multiple times to become, so if it's not. There's, there's no physical left, right. it's just the energetic signature. Yeah, so there's, there's so many avenues, but it's all the same thing. It's just many streets to the same destination. That's, you know, and whatever works because some people are more receptive than others. If people have allergies, if people have had a bad, if they have had a bad association with a smell, you know, you don't want to, you have to, again, it's tiptoe in. Everything is tiptoe, gentle, less is more. And if you can remember that with everything, I think that's, that's the key to learning about all of this because you're so enthused and you want to do everything. It's not that way. It's, it's you have a, a toolkit. The bigger your toolkit, the more opportunities you have to help that person. Very good. Well, um, just some wrap-up questions here. So, um, Tom, you want you got a, a wrap-up question for Gene? Or? Um, I think you've hit on most of the big things for the audience. I would say of all the tools that you've utilized, I think you've already alluded to this, but if the people had to pick the top three of self-care, what would you suggest to the audience? Definitely breathing. Breathing's number one. And, and because this is my preference, the essential oils, I just, I love them. Whether you have them in a bottle or you're just getting them from the plant, because we also used to do bring in herbs. So we had an herbal garden. And the people in the palliative care unit, just a beautiful little bundle with rosemary and sage, and just them touching that connected them to the plant, connected them to the earth. That was another beautiful way. And then the sound in whatever form you know, whether you use it on a CD, whether it's your own voice is really your best because it's with you all the time. You don't have to plug it in. You don't have to try to make it work on any kind of platform. It's there with you always. Well, so, you haven't heard me sing. I don't think it would be overly helpful or healing. <laughs> What's that? My voice would not help. Sing, my voice singing, I don't think it would be helpful or healing. It's not the singing <laughs> quality. It's that's because it's an expression of your breath. And that is the breath is the thing that holds the spiritual to the physical. When that breath is gone, when that breath ceases, the spiritual moves away from the body. So the sound that you make, whether it's a whisper, and that is even in, in um, the Indian version, um, we had a, a gentleman come and teach us that it's called Upanch, the softness of the, of the whisper. All you have to do is just whisper that sound to yourself that is a beautiful thing to do. So I don't know. I hope I've given you like a, a smorgasbord of things to choose yep. from. Absolutely. I could go on. There's many, many more, but it's it, it just well, life is fascinating. I think it's um, obvious you have a great depth of knowledge in this. And I know just for 
people out there, I mean, Jean's not selling anything. She doesn't have a website to go to per se. Um, and she's recommended, you know, the Holistic uh, Nurse Association for some, for some go-to data. And um, so I just, you know, would say, listen, if you're into this stuff and there's some actual really good science that's out there to back all this up or, or it wouldn't be happening in hospitals. She's one of the pioneers in this. And she's what I call the behind the heat behind the scenes heroes in this, because they're not selling something. They're not got a little shop. They're trying to, uh, you know, do something with the public. She's just actually doing it uh, because she loves to do it. It's part of her medical um, portfolio. And I really uh, appreciate you coming on, Jane. Is there any uh, parting words you'd like to leave with the listeners uh, related to this type of healing? Um, yeah, actually, I have a quote from Rumi. Okay. I like, um, the wound is the place where the light enters. And so for me, that's how I got started in this until I had that stress in my life that I was searching for healing when I didn't even know what I was looking for my first, the healing touch class. So if you are experiencing stress, it'll be out there. And just like in herbal studies, within a hundred feet of you, there's always the healing um, remedy. And there's my- right. Perfect, perfect. Okay, well, um, with that, we are gonna wrap it up. And Gina, I really appreciate you coming uh, today and being part of this uh, topic. So I think it's really, really informative of uh, all, some alternative or an integrative um, medicine. We're not saying don't go to your doctor and do the regular thing. Oh, absolutely go to your doctor. Yeah, absolutely go. But there are some additional things. That's the difference between alternative and integrative, as you pointed out. So, best of both worlds. Use them both. Okay. All right. Well, very good uh, from us at the Metaphysical Mysteries. We appreciate all the listeners out there, and we'll be back uh, in a couple of weeks with another. Uh, fascinating episode of the Metaphysical Mysteries. See y'all later.